Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. I'm, I have been excited about the series that we're going to start um, for probably about a year. I knew it was, it was coming. I just didn't know when it was coming. And uh, after our, our um, Wednesday night Bible study that we've been doing the last couple of weeks for four weeks uh, for a Bible study at our house on Wednesday nights at seven. If you want to come, we're two weeks in. Um, don't worry about it. You didn't miss, you know, like anything that's going to keep you from being involved later on. If you want to come now, weeks three and four, um, you can grab our address after the house, or after the service, our house address after the service. I'm good at talk. And you guys can figure out um, if you want to come, and we'd love to have you. We dig deeper into the messages and what God's Word um, is saying is kind of uh, changing us and uh, asking a bunch of questions. We had some great times together. But um, after that, this past Wednesday, as I kind of saw the direction that went, and then as I got into um, kind of thinking about the message and asking the Lord which direction to go, this kind of rose up. And so this has been, um, this is going to be a fun one for me. Um, I hope it's fun for you, but it's going to be great for me. Um, it's called the Fortune Cookie, Fortune Cookie Series. And we're going to, and you'll, you'll understand what that means as we get into the message a little bit further. And it's going to be over the next several weeks. And so, but what I, before I get into just um, explaining the title of the series and the message for today, I want to kind of build a quick foundation for us. And I want to use a word that a lot of people get afraid of in the church world. And I'm, it's, it's the word theology. And you may say, man, when I hear that word, word I kind of tune out a little bit because I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't do a discipleship program. I didn't do, you know, any extensive study in scripture or anything like that. And so when you say words like theology and sanctification, I just go, and I just kind of tune out. Don't tune out. Because theology is not a word you should be afraid of. I'm going to explain to you what it means. It's the first line in your notes. It comes from two different Greek words. And the first one is theos, which is God. First line is God. And the second part of the word is logos. And there's two definitions. The first one there in your, in your notes is word. Or the second one is study. So theology is defined as, next line in your notes, the study of God. It is simply the study of God. So when someone talks about theology or, or how, how um, their th- theology is developing, it just means they're studying the Bible, they're studying scripture, they're studying how God works with his people in, um, in, throughout history and in the scriptures, and they are sh- they're, they're, they're beginning to understand more how God operates, his character, his directives, his commandments. So when you hear the word theology, just think it's just a study of God. So this is important to understand because, um, next line in your notes, theology is discovered in Scripture, not built through human understanding. Theology is discovered in Scripture and not built through human understanding. Um, So as we're people who want to have develop a sound theology, a, a accurate study of God, we want to understand who God is, what he does, what he provides, what he directs, what he commands for us to do. Um, there are some things that have been given to us to help us along the path of understanding and our study in God. And you may not have thought about this very much because uh, I sure didn't um, for, for many years. And then it kind of dawned on me one day that next on your notes, one thing that helped 
people in their study of God was the addition of numbered chapters and verses to the Bible. Chapters and verses to the Bible. Now, I'll, we'll, let me give you the next line in your notes, and then I'll explain some things to you. The, the books of the Bible did not include chapters and verses when written. So, for instance, if we have, if, if, you know, today we talk about, you know, earlier this year, we went through the book of Philippians, right? It was one complete letter written from Paul to the church in Philippi. It was not given in segments. He didn't say, you know, this is the first letter, the second letter, the third letter, fourth letter. And then, you know, it kind of came up the four chapters. It was one letter that was sent to um, to the, the, the believers in the church in Philippi. Same thing with Romans. It's one letter that was sent to uh, Rome. If you'll notice 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it's two different letters that were sent from Paul to the church in Corinth. If you want to be accurate, and if you ever hit a Bible trivia speed bump on this one, um, 1 and 2 Corinthians are actually 2 and 3 Corinthians. There was a 1 Corinthians letter that was written before that we don't have. Um, that um, we don't we don't know where it went or where it got lost throughout history. But so first and second Corinthians, actually second and third Corinthians, but second Corinthians was written as a complete letter. And then there was another follow up to it. That is the third Corinthians. Does it make sense? These are all written as letters. They were not broken down into chapters and verse. That's not how that worked. As people began to study God's word, as people began to kind of get more involved in talking about God's word, they realized there was a problem. Hey, did you read that chapter in the, or did you read in the Bible about David? Well, where? Because Samuel talks about David, Chronicles mentions David, I think. You know, there's, there's Psalms, there's a whole bunch of books that talk about David which one are you referring to? Oh, well, Psalms. Well, there's a, that one's a long one. That one's a long one. So uh, what they began to do was section off scripture into these kind of bite-sized chunks. And people did this all throughout history. And one of the first people that was very um, active in doing this to try to break them down and next on your notes you don't have to write this one down it's just in there is a theologian and biblical translator jerome divided the bible into shorter passages called pericopes in the fifth century but they were not widely adopted so throughout history people were trying to break down the letters so that they could talk about them and discuss them in a more accurate way and it's beneficial for us right because we can go turn to philippians chapter 4 verse 1 and everybody goes to the same place so how these chapters and verses got introduced into the Bible were that different people who were studying and reading God's word had these ideas and they began to be adopted. So um, there's a couple of bullet points that you can follow along here with. Numbered chapters for the Bible were introduced by Stephen Langton in 1227 AD. If you do some quick math, what you'll understand is that the Bible had no chapters and verses for a longer period of time than it's been chapters and verses. Bullet point number two, the Old Testament verse numbers were developed by a Jewish rabbi named Nathan in 1448. The New Testament verse numbers were developed by Robert Estein. They also referred to him as Stephanus in 1551. So what's happened is, is over the course of several hundred years, somebody broke down the Bible into chapters. 
Then somebody went to the Old Testament and broke it down into verses based on these chapters. And then somebody uh, uh, several years later went to the New Testament and broke down these verses so that we could start to have a point of reference when we study and discuss God's word. The, then it's the fourth bullet, next line in your notes. The Geneva Bible from the 16th century, the Geneva Bible is what it was called, was the first English Bible to include both chapter and verse divisions for both Old and New Testament. And here's another little fun fact for you. The Geneva Bible was the Bible that the Puritans and pilgrims brought on the ship from, from Great Britain to here when they were beginning to settle in America. The Geneva Bible with the chapters and verses is one they brought with them. <clears throat> so this has been very beneficial for us because if I say John 3, 16, Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Every believer has been in church longer than 10 minutes, probably understands and has memorized that in children's church or in youth or something, right? If we say Philippians, you know, 4.13, or we say Matthew 6.33, these gold, the golden rule, you can use these book titles, chapter numbers, and verses to immediately go, I know what he's talking about. That has been very beneficial, but there has been a drawback to putting verses and chapters in the Bible. And the drawback is, if you've never really thought about, oh, when did these chapters and verses get introduced? You could easily think, this is how the Bible was written. And this is not put in there to help me study. It was written at these little statements every single time. This one sentence is two sentences. And the next line in your notes is kind of is going to start to shed some light on what our series title here is. The American church has viewed scripture as fortune cookie statements. And and on one hand, you can't blame them, right? You can't blame people because they're numbered. And this is what this number says. And we take that and we liberally apply it to whatever we want to. We take this scripture as one liner, and we take it, and we just kind of put it on whatever we want, thinking that this scripture, I've kind of made it apply to the situation I'm going through. In a way, it's become a fortune cookie. So what is a fortune cookie? Fortune cookie comes with the bill, probably, right, at a... At a um, some kind of you know Chinese food or Asian food restaurant, Thai food. People like this thing called pho. It doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds like half of a word, so I won't eat anything that's like a half of a word. Um, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm not a big fan of it. So um, I've you know I'm married into the Polynesian culture, so I'm I'm kind of have to eat Chinese food by default because it's you know a staple in some of their in some of their meals and gatherings and stuff. So at the end they bring you a portion cookie, and it's this little sweet thing that you crack open or crush open. And for those you don't know, you can eat them. You can eat the cookies. Um, You eat the cookies and then in the middle of it is this little statement. And it's some vague statement, right? It's like, someone you love is thinking about you. And then you turn it over and it's a bunch of lottery numbers that don't work, right? Like, and then, you know, or or another statement that says, um, uh, expect good news next week. It's like these general statements and people go, I've been, waiting for the job to call me back. I wonder if I got the job next week. I'm going to get the job. You know, they kind of take these little statements that are general things and they apply it to something that it may not even apply to. 
they take these things out of context and apply them to things that don't fit. And the danger of breaking scripture up into these verses without understanding that it was not written verse by verse is that we can grab one of these verses and pull it out and just think, oh, this is, I can make this mean what I want it to mean. If you were uh, an author and you wrote a book and then somebody flipped open the book right to the middle and just grabbed one of the statements out and said, I know what this book says, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. You got to read the whole thing. It's the same thing with scripture, but with the numbers of the verses, we think where it leads us to believe if we're not taught that it was written all together, that we can just take one of these things and pull it out, pull it out and put it in wherever we want it. When we do this, it creates a false theology. It is a, it is a um, misunderstanding of God's word. And what happens is when we do this, people get frustrated or even some people that you know, maybe you have gone through this and thought, man, well, this scripture says this and I didn't read the context. I didn't read before it or after it or anything like that. And I applied it to my situation or my doubt or my frustration of the scenario I was going through. And it didn't work out how this says. And the danger of this is it turns people away from the gospel going, it just doesn't work for me. It says that in there, but it didn't work for me. And they kind of drop the whole thing and walk away. That's the danger. When we take little verses and try to force them into meaning something directly for us, we distort the truth. It reminds me of, um, reminds me of I don't know about you guys, but when I was little, uh, I would watch those old Chinese movies, like the, the Kung Fu movies. And it was so bad that the, um, the movies were like, were great and funny, you know, like we were watching back now and laugh, but the, the people who brought them over to America didn't even bother trying to like put subtitles at the bottom. They just had a guy in English talking over the, you know, it was spoken in Chinese and the guy in English just talking over it and the mouth and the words never, you know, you know, no, were in sync and they would be like, hey, you want to fight? Fight me. And it was always like, I was like, what is going on here? Until my dad tried to explain it to me, right? And my favorite Kung Fu movie, um, uh, my favorite Kung Fu line was one that said, um, your Kung Fu is no good. Like the guy was like insulting him. He's fighting him with like one hand and they're going through all these, you know, this fight scene or whatever. That's what I thought of when I thought of people who pulled these verses and try to create a th theology out of it. Your theology is no good. It is no good here. Your theology is weak because we take these individual little verses and try to apply them to places they don't apply to. So our goal here is that our Kung Fu is not weak. Our goal here is that our theology is not weak. Our goal here is that your theology is sound and in line with scripture. So I decided to take on the very first week, we're only going to talk about one of these passages, and we'll talk about a few of them um, in the weeks to come. But I decided to take one of the biggest misused um, scriptures and deal with it right up front. We're going to go straight for the jugular. We're jumping right into the deep end. We're not going to like, you know, kind of go into our ankle deep or knee deep. We're going to jump all the way into the one that is most, one of the most widely misused scriptures. 
The reason that it's important that we understand how these scriptures are used appropriately is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. If the scripture is not doing that, and it's becoming very convenient for you to take it and apply it to the things that you want to do, but it's not accomplishing teaching you what's really right or really wrong. It's not leading you down to the truth. It's not teaching you what to do, what is right. It's you kind of twist it a little bit and just take a scripture here or a scripture there so that I can do what I want to do. Then the scripture is not being as a, it's not being effective like it's intended to be. You got to take the whole thing and not just grab one or two because it. I think it will make my scenario be better. So the first one that we're coming after this week is something that I have seen embroidered on t-shirts, throw pillows, printed on in front of a waterfall picture and put on a wall at a house or a church. And the most abused place I've seen in the scripture is on social media by Christian people who are well-intentioned, but they post this a lot and they liberally apply this like ointment to a gunshot wound. It does not fit there, but wham, we're going to put it on there anyway. And here's the scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a hope and a future. Another scripture, another translation of this says, um, I know the plans for you, I have, uh, says the Lord, they're plans to prosper and not to harm you. You know, I can see where this one's going, right? Prosper and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And people who are, do, who are struggling in their business or struggling in their job, even if it's something that they're doing that God told them not to do, they're still trying to go that direction, they grab and go, well, God's plan for me is to prosper and not to harm me. So God, make this work. And they keep going in disobedience down a road. God did not tell them to go down and they think they've got a scripture to back them up. If we have to grab a scripture to back us up, instead of going to the scripture and following it, there's a high probability we are using it incorrectly. I'm gonna say that one more time. If we are going to find a scripture to try to back us up, instead of us submitting to scripture and following where it goes, there's a possibility, not a guarantee, but a possibility that we're using it incorrectly. So if, I know none of you have done this, I have, but I know none of you have, have used this scripture in a wrong way. I've, you know, as especially young in ministry, when the first time I heard that, like I got little goosebumps all over my arms. I'm like, is that in the Bible? Let me go read that. It is what it says. And so I would work that in every once in a while when I needed like a, you know, response from a crowd or, you know, something like that. Or I felt like the message was was losing a little bit of steam. I might throw in a couple of these one-liners that are completely out of context, but normally got people all riled up. I have used this passage incorrectly my own self. So if I'm putting anybody on blast, it's me. I've done this incorrectly. But if I were to ask that person, Let's go back and ask young Matt. I'm not old, but younger than the young I am right now. I would say, hey, man, 
why do you think that scripture applies to you? Because it's a promise of God. It's one of those things that, you know, God promises to prosper, not to harm us, give us hope and a future, and I'm taking that for me. Well, why, if we're going to take Jeremiah 29, 11, do we ignore Jeremiah 44, 11? Therefore, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord God of Israel said, I am determined to destroy every one of you. Well, come on. It doesn't apply to me. Why? If you're going to take one, you got to take them all. And if you ask young Matt that question, I would be completely stumped because I would not answer you because I took something out of context and applied it in the wrong place. Well, I don't want the one that says I'm determined to destroy every one of you. Like y'all keep 4411, I'll take 2911 and apply it to wherever I see fit, right? And I'm going to get into this a little bit later in the series, but I'm, I'm just going to give you one quick tool to use. Um, next sign in your notes when we're going through scripture, and it's this. One question to ask when reading scripture is, who is this written to? Who is this written to? You might immediately think, well, it's in the Bible, so it's written to me. And I, at one point in my, my life, would be like, yes, that's what I think. But, next sign in your notes, the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you. The Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you. Here's what I mean. We talked about the book of Philippians earlier. Paul wrote it, a letter to the people in what city? Philippi, there you go. Thank you, Sergio. You get an A for the class. They give him a star on the board or something, a check mark. Um, thank you. Um, Cardinals win. Look at you. You're all attentive. Awesome. Um, the, 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 the letter of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. How many of you live in Philippi? How many of you lived in the time when Paul was alive? If that's you, please come see me after the service. I'd love to meet you and see how you did that. None of you. The book of Romans has great stuff for us as believers, but it was, was it written to you? Are you from Rome? No. Thessalonians, Thessalonica, were you ever living in Thessalonica? Didn't you spend some time in Thessalonica, Christian? No? No? Yeah, you wish? Right. So it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So what we have to do is when we are tempted to look at these scriptures and go, Jeremiah 29, 11, God's got a plan to prosper and not to harm me. Woo, money's coming my way, yeah. It's like we broke the fortune cookie open, took out one statement and are trying to apply it and it doesn't work. Let's look at what Jeremiah 29, 11 really says. We're gonna read them in chunks here, but we're gonna read Jeremiah 29 verses one through four. And let's see if this is to you. <laughs> it answers it very quickly. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 4. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who have been exiled in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Any uh, Babylonian exiles in here? So it was written to them. This was after King uh, Hardward 
the queen mother and the, and the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans have been deported from Jerusalem. I don't know any of these, how to pronounce any of these names. I'm just going to like kind of, I'm going to butcher them here, but just uh, bear with me. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Saphon, and Gamar, Gamar, and G, the son of H, when they went to Babylon as King Z's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. He's, they sent the letter with the guy whose name starts with E and the one that starts with G and sent them. That's who carried the letter to the exiles. This is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Pretty clear this is not written to American Gentile followers of Jesus living in Phoenix. It's written to the exiles in Babylon. Now, you might say, exiles in Babylon, what are you talking about? About 500 to 600 years before Jesus was born, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful kings and one of the most powerful cities of Babylon. He was extending his kingdom and extending his occupied regions. And so one of the areas that he overtook was Jerusalem. He overran the temple. He overran the city. He overran the people there. He put some in captivity and he left some and said, hey, you're, I'm, I've beaten you. I've conquered you. I'm going to let you live in your city. Stay calm and just follow my rules. Do you think the Jewish people stayed calm and followed his rules very well? No, they did not. They rebelled multiple times. And after several years, Nebuchadnezzar got tired of it and said, I'm not sending anybody to tell them anymore because he did a few times. I'm going to go down there with my army and reconquer them again. And he went down there and conquered them all. He left some there, but he captured a large percentage of them, took them away from their homeland and said, you have to stay here. You can't go back to your homeland. So if you're a child of God and you've been overrun by some wicked pagan ruler and you have this, God's going to come save me. He, he delivered our, our ancestors out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He did all this stuff. What do you think? He's coming for you. God's not going to let this pagan godless ruler come over and take over us. He's going to come and get us. Okay, so now let's keep reading. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 14. This is what the Lord said to the people who were exiled in Babylon, the captives in, of, of the Jewish people in Babylon. Build homes and plan to stay. When I read that, I stopped and went, what? Build homes and plan to stay? Plant gardens and eat the food they produce, like the Babylonians produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you to exile. Work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon? The city that's worshiping false gods, you're telling me to work for the peace and prosperity of that city? Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. 
This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams. It means they were having dreams, but they were false. Don't listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. And then I will come and do for you all the things I promised, and I will bring you home again, because I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days, you will, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. Does this sound like an encouragement scripture for people who are struggling in some area of their life to be like, God's going to fix it and make it better? No, this is a scripture of God telling people, hey, you're my people, but you keep rebelling against me. You keep disobeying. You keep not listening to me. We'll get to that here in a second. You keep uh, disregarding my commands. And so as a consequence for what, you, what you're doing, I'm going to let you reap the benefits of your sown disobedience. And I'm going to let these people come down and conquer you. And get ready to stay there a while, 70 years. Let your kids, have some kids. And then when they get grown, get them married and have some grandkids. And build a house and, a, and some livestock. Settle down a little bit. You are going to be in exile for seven decades. Some of them are going to die there. Some of them are going to be born and never make it out. They'll never know what it was like to live in the promised land. I'm going to let you, you have earned this punishment through your disobedience. I'm going to let you bear the brunt of it, but it's not going to destroy you. That's why I'm telling you, it's not going, I want you to continue to multiply. Don't dwindle off. Don't just lay down and die because I have a plan for you. You know what that plan was? to pull them out, restore them, and to bring the Savior of the world through the nation of Israel. There is hope for you. There is a future for you. I'm going to get you out of this eventually and take you in there, but you're going to take your lumps on this one. You wanted to reject me. You wanted to worship other gods. Go worship them. How did that work out for you? Not very well, but I'm not going to let it destroy you. I'm going to get you out. I'm going to restore you one day, but after you have earned what you have sowed. Let's keep reading, <clears throat> 15 through 19. You claim that the Lord has raised up prophets for you in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all who are still here in Jerusalem. Your relatives who were not exiled to Babylon. So there's people in Babylon and there's some family who are back in Jerusalem that have not been exiled or captured. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. I will send war, famine, and disease upon them, 
and make them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. Yes, I will pursue them with war, famine, and disease, and I will scatter them around the world. In every nation where I send them, I will make them an object of damnation, horror, contempt, and mockery. Man, I'm encouraged. For they refuse to listen to me, though I have spoken to them repeatedly through the prophets I sent. And you who are in exile have not listened either, says the Lord. This message is for the nation of Israel who has willfully rejected and disobeyed the instruction and command of Almighty God. And now they're reaping what they've sowed, but God said, hey, I have a plan for your life. I'm going to bring you out of it, reestablish you, and then there's going to be the hope for the entire world come through the nation of Israel, and that's Jesus. I'm not going to kill you off because I have promised Abraham that I'm going to build this bloodline forever, and he's prophesied that the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of David. If he allows his people to be wiped off the face of the earth, he's not God. Why? Because the prophecy isn't fulfilled. So there is a hope, there is a future, and it has to do with the goodness and grace of Almighty God restoring you after your disobedience and sin. You are not lost after it. If there's anything for us to look at this passage and say, how does that apply to me? We were born in a land of sin. Our sin has locked us up in a place separated from God. The wages of sin is death. And what happens? God says, I'm not going to leave you there if you are my child. If you have, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pull you out eventually. You are not stuck there. The life that you are dealing with, wrestling with the flesh, wrestling with sin, wrestling in this world that is going to hell in a handbasket and going out of its mind at the moment and has been for some time. Don't worry, you're not going to stay there forever. There is a hope, a future, and that is eternity with Jesus. What you'll find is that in the Old Testament, there are these little shadows, like these little nods to what Christ did for us and reminders of what we are promised as God's people. This does not mean if I'm disobedient to God and pursuing something in my life that I have determined is good, but God has not determined is good. I can look at it and go, God has great plans for me. He's going to prosper me. He's going to give me a hope in a future, and I'm going to continue be dis being disobedient and going down this way opposite of how he's instructed because I have a scripture that backs me up. When we do that, your theology is no good here. It's not good. Jeremiah 29, next line in your notes, is God speaking directly to the Jewish ex exiles living in Babylon hundreds of years before Christ. And here's the bold statement for you, the next line in your notes. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 has nothing to do with us as Gentile believers in Christ. We do not get to take it and apply it wherever we want and take any activity that we think would be good for us, slap a Bible verse on it, slap the God card on it, and go, I got scripture to back me up on this one, and then freely go reign. No, this one doesn't have anything to do with us. If anything, it is a reminder of the bondage of sin, the grace of God, and the hope we have going forward through Christ. Next on your notes, it is very important. We as believers do not try to sweeten the deal. It is very important. We as believers do not try to sweeten the deal with false teachings and untrue benefits people will receive for following Jesus. There is a temptation in us, and there has been in me, and so because I'm part of us, I will assume that some of you have dealt with it as well. There's a temptation in us to look at the culture and go, oh man, I have so much to offer, so much sin. Seems like it's all fun, partying, all the substances you can handle, just sleep with whoever you want, just go and live whatever way, and people in the world will accept you, and they'll embrace you, and then we look at the Bible and go, oh, there's things we're supposed to do and not do. And we can be tempted to look at the people who seemingly have this open opportunity to go do whatever their mind wants to do, whatever their heart wants to do, whatever their, their, their sin and their flesh nature wants to do. And then there's a temptation for us to look at them and be like, hey, you can go over there and try to be rich, but you can be rich with Jesus too. Hey, you want to be successful and have famous? Just come over here and be famous and just be like this. Whenever and point up to the sky and just give a nod to faith or God when you get over here. You can do all of that over here too. It's just, just come over here. And there's temptation for us to try to tell people that they have a benefits package that scripture doesn't back up. I sat and cringed at a, at a message. I heard a guy tell me one time that he, that he said um, uh, that I would never believe a poor preacher, anything he said. Because the Bible says we're all supposed to be prosperous. And if he's not prospering financially, then you guys got to realize he's not following the Bible. And I sat there and all the people, 400 people in this, uh, in this auditorium went, Amen. Why? Because everybody wants the money. Everybody wants the fancy house and the cars and the, the luxurious lifestyle. And what we had done and what he was doing at that moment was trying to say, hey, you can get all this in the world, but you can get it with Jesus too and still have eternity. And what happens is we present these false benefits to people 
that God is under no obligation to back up because we promised him. And what we do is turn people off from the gospel because what we said was going to happen didn't happen because our theology was weak and no good. Here's an example for you. If I were to take, uh, if I were, I'm not going to ask Christian to come here, but if I ask Christian to come up here and say, okay, Christian, you're the light of the world. And I turned all the lights off in this room. I said, now I want you to be the light of the world. And he wrote the word light on this piece of paper and stood there in the darkness with a piece of paper that said light. You would say, that's ridiculous. That's not what the scripture means. What you're supposed to do, if Christian was standing here and and the analogy, he would go and grab one of the lights, plug it in in the dark room and stand here and be like, hey, I have the light. I have the truth. But when we promise people something that is not in God's word, it's very similar. It's like standing in the dark when we're supposed to be in the light and writing light on a piece of paper thinking that we're shining bright. We are not. Next on your notes. There is no need to embellish scripture to appeal to a self-serving culture because the benefits of following Christ are already rich, abundant, and eternal. Why do we not need to fluff up and be dishonest or distort the truth about the gospel? Why? Because the goodness of Jesus is already enough. What we get as believers in Christ is already enough. What we receive as as co-heirs with Christ Jesus and being adopted into the family of God is already so good, we don't need to add anything else to it. It's like taking the best meal in the world and then taking a whole bunch of salt and dumping it on top of it. Don't need it. You don't need to add your flavor. You don't need to, to, to make it unpalatable because what God gives is already better than anything the world has to offer. Are you tired of sitting there like the guy I met this morning at Dutch Bros who was like, man, I'm so hungover from last night. I don't want to go to work today. I don't want to do anything. I want to go back home because my head is pounding. Do you think that's the life? Oh, yes, man, that you're living it up, bro. What are we trying to do? Well, you can drink and come over here a little bit. Just not get drunk. Why are we trying to sweeten the deal? Why are we trying to compromise with the goodness of God or already is? What do you already get as someone who serves God? Peace that passes all understanding. I guarantee you, I have, I have met and talked to and listened to people who are unbelievably filthy rich and drop their kids off at a YMCA in Scottsdale because they don't know how to deal with them and they go try to drown their own problems at the local, uh, local bar because they can't find peace and they have everything they could ever want. When you serve God, the spirit of God resides inside of you and you have the access to a peace that passes all understanding. You have the almighty God, the creator, the most powerful being ever to exist in in our universe or any other who is your protector and provider. 
that God is your protector and provider. You have grace and mercy following you all the days of your life. I have a life that has been changed not by the effects of love, but by the author of love. I have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to overcome or and or endure through every single one of life's hardships. You have available to you joy unspeakable. What is available to us is a community of like-minded people to enjoy and lean on through, uh, through, the, through life and through everything that we go through in life. We have the fruit of salvation and the fruit of the spirit. We have been given gifts and an ability to serve one another. We have been given the ability to be light in the darkness. And if all of that has failed, you have the promise of eternity with our creator. What else? Oh yeah, but I want some money too. Give me a break. Bunny cannot buy this. Fame cannot buy this. Prestige cannot buy this. The bigger house, the bigger car. I'm not against any of those things, but if those have become our focus and we try to find ways in scripture to justify my pursuit of those things over Christ or tell everybody else that you can pursue those things, just slip in a little bit of Jesus. No. Why? Because the goodness of all Almighty God is already better than anything the world has to offer. It's already better. You have peace. You have joy. You have hope. Go out and ask the world. Ask all the people who are tired of like uh, having these little one night stand flings in relationships what they want. And give a list of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, um, and self-control. And see if people go, I'll take somebody with that. Someone has character and integrity and will not leave you under any circumstances. I'll take that. You think, oh, I got to go out there to find some real girl. No, you don't. I got to find some real guy out there. No, you don't. But what you really want is a man who acts and walks and follows the commands of Jesus. Because that dude is, has a very low probability of smacking you in the mouth when he gets angry. Self-control. You want self-control. Ladies, you want a guy with self-control. Guys, you want a girl that has self-control. You want all of that. And all of those benefits are available to people who serve God now. There's no need for us to take a scripture out of context to try to Use it as bait to reel in people to get in our camp and join our team and still go pursue their fleshly desires, but just say a little prayer with me and think they're going to heaven. And then be like, we did something good. Why would we compromise the gospel to fit the culture when the culture has nothing, nothing close to comparing to almighty God? There's no reason to do it. And if you're in this room and you say, Man, I've looked at the culture and what it has to offer. And there's something in me that desperately wants to go over there, but I'm staying over here. But there's this war going back and forth inside of me. I'm telling you the fight is natural because there's a part of you that's flesh. Come back to your almighty God. Submit to him and say, God, help me kill this part of me. There's no reason to go in his word and try to find one sentence out of an entire paragraph that justifies my action. There's no reason to do it.
because he's just that good. He's just that good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We are his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd, I shall not want. If he takes care of all those things, and if he has that much care over the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how much more does he care for you, his own children? Don't look at the world and what it has to offer because it will be a temporary satisfaction and it will never be an eternal fulfillment. It'll never be that way. There's no reason to not take the Bible at the full goodness that it already gives us. The world wants you to crack the cookie open, have a 10 to 15 second enjoyment period of that cookie. Take that statement and follow it, whether it leads to Jesus or not. We can't treat scripture the same way. If you were someone who struggled with that, no problem. I've struggled with it my own self. I want to invite you into the 90 days of us reading the New Testament that we started last month. And if you're like, man, I'm off the rails and I, I, I stopped somewhere, no problem. You can download the thing off the website, off the media link, it's on there. And just pick up where we're at and keep going. The goal is not for you to look at it at the end and be like, I finished. The goal is to go, my goodness, the word of God is so good. We don't need to bend it out of context because the truth of Jesus Christ is just that good.